If you were with us last uh, Wednesday night, you may remember that we started a new series that we've entitled The Life of David. And uh, we started in the 16th chapter and, and um, uh, where David is first made mention of in Scripture. And we talked about some things, particularly the characteristics, the um, uh, uh, both natural and spiritual characteristics that David showed as a young boy. Uh, to kind of catch up on uh, the, the story, uh, Israel wanted a king. They said, uh, even though Samuel the prophet said, um, uh, on behalf of God, you'd be better off to let God be your king, let him be your ruler. But Israel said, no, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king like they've got. Well, they got a king like they've got, like the other nations got. They got somebody that was ruled by the flesh, and they got somebody that even though he looked apart, he had all the physical characteristics and attributes of, uh, of someone that would be a leader. He uh, uh, um, allowed himself to be dominated by the flesh and, and finally got into disobedience. And the Lord uh, took away his anointing from him and gave it to David instead. Now, when, uh, when God said to Samuel, uh, it grieves me that, uh, that Saul has um, um, become the way that he was. Saul, when he started off, uh, when Samuel was about to anoint him to be king, even before he did, uh, Saul was a very humble person. He was uh, somebody that, uh, that didn't try to put himself forward. He was somebody that seemed to be of the right character, but his character had never been tested. And as a result, once he gained uh, the position and the popularity, then he got lifted up in pride, and uh, it caused him to, uh, to not only disobey the directions that Samuel gave Saul from God to, to carry out, but also he began to, to think that he was uh, of such great importance that he could take over other people's job. He started making sacrifices, or in one case at least, he made sacrifices when only the priest is supposed to do that. For that reason, God said to Saul, uh, through Samuel the prophet, he said, well, okay, since you've disobeyed me and I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And from that point, the anointing left Saul. He's, he's continued to be king, but the anointing left Saul. Uh, the King James says it this way, an evil spirit from the, tr- from the Lord troubled him. Well, if you look up those words, it literally means... Because of this, uh, this situation, the, the anointing lifting from Saul to be king, now he's standing in an office that he doesn't have the anointing to, to stand in, um, depression set in. He was greatly troubled and, and, uh, and so forth. It wasn't that God sent evil spirits. God doesn't send evil spirits. If God sent evil spirits, then it would be wrong for us to resist evil spirits because it would be from God. And if God sent evil spirits, then Jesus was working contrary to the will of God when he cast out evil spirits. Are you with me? So it doesn't mean it doesn't mean what the translators translated it. It means that the that the devil was tormenting Saul because he knew that he had done wrong, and now the the presence of the Lord has left him. And so somebody came up with the idea to get to uh, uh, to bring Saul a, a minstrel, somebody that could play the instruments and play some music, soothing music, so that he could get relief from this uh, this depression that he was in. And that's when somebody told about David, and they mentioned uh, in chapter sixteen. Verse 18, he mentions five different characteristics of David. And we talked about this some last time. Now, it says that when David played, that the Saul was refreshed. And that's the way the 16th chapter ends up. It came to pass, verse 23, it came to pass when the evil spirit from God, again, it's not from God, was upon Saul that David took a harp and played with his hand and Saul was refreshed and was well. And the evil spirit departed from him. Now, chapter 17 starts telling us the story about Goliath. The first uh, 11 11 verses of the chapter tells us about how that the Philistines were gathered together uh, against Israel's army. And uh, Philistines' uh, champion, Goliath, was uh, a guy that goes into the great detail about his his armor and about his size. 
Most uh, estimates um, conclude that he was about nine and a half to ten feet tall. And he'd come out once a day for 40 days and, and challenge the, the armies of Israel. He'd say, why do we need to fight? Why don't we need to get everybody in this fight and maybe hurt people? Why don't you send out your champion? If your champion beats me, then, then uh, Philistines will be your servants. But if I beat your champion, then you can be our servants. Well, this, uh, the Bible says that it was greatly dismayed and troubled Saul and uh, the rest of the army. Everybody was dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, notice with me in verse 12, chapter 17, verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. Now, David has been, in chapter 16, David was anointed by Samuel the prophet, as the next king of Israel. But they had to do it in secret because that would have created a, a riot and Saul would have been uh, in a position to try to kill everybody involved and, and so forth. So they had to do that in secret. So only his closest family members knew. We don't even know if his, brother, if his older brothers were there when David was anointed by Samuel in the presence of Jesse. It's possible that his household knew, but it's not, uh, it's not a sure thing. We don't know for certain that, that, uh, that they knew. So David is then summoned to Saul's court, where he plays and soothes Saul with the music that he plays. Now, I want you to understand something about David. David is a type of, of uh, sometimes he's a type of Jesus, sometimes he's a type of the believer. And one of the things about David is the whole story of David, and there's quite a lot of information in the Bible about David. Everything about David, everything about the events surrounding David's life are outgrowths or outcroppings of his character. Now, you can't say that about everybody else. It would be nice, uh, and, and I guess in a general sense, we could say everything we do is a product of our character, but David is specifically generated. David's activity is specifically generated by his character. And even in the times where he messed up, he said and, and repented and asked forgiveness for a failure of character. Now, folks, it's, it's interesting and important for you to realize that the type of both Jesus and the believer... And the reason he's the type of both of them in different situations is because the Bible says that those of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives, Paul said, you are Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're the son of the God, the creator of the universe, but it means we're joint heirs with him. It means as far as God is concerned, as far as our position is concerned, because we've been born again by the spirit of God, it means we're the same as Jesus on the earth. That's why it's important for us to develop the same character that Jesus had. I know a lot of people are trying to produce uh, the fruit of Jesus' ministry, but they're not trying to develop the character that he had. Jesus said you can know a tree by the fruit that it produces. Paul talked about no matter what you do, if you don't have love, it's not worth anything. So what is he saying? He's saying it's not only results, it's not only the activities, it's not only the events of our life that count, but the character behind those events. And David's a, a perfect example of that, both as a type of Jesus and as a type of the believer. Now, notice one of the things about David. Now he's been in Saul's court, but it tells us that he didn't stay there. It says in verse 15, chapter 17, verse 15, but David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I want you to notice something about David's character. He never got too big for the sheep. 
Now, don't you know David would have had a perfect opportunity to come back to his family? You're going to see the attitude of his brothers when he goes to the, the place of the battle, the, the valley where the, the Philistines are on one side and Israel's on the other. You're going to see the attitudes, particularly of his older brother, uh, when he shows up. Wouldn't it have been a perfect opportunity? We assume that if his attitude, the older brother's attitude was that way in chapter 17, is that the older brother's attitude would have been that way in chapters 15 and 16 before this time took place, before these events took place. Wouldn't it have been a perfect opportunity for David to go back and tell his older brother, ever been to the palace? Ever played before the king? Well, that's right. You don't play. You know how brothers are. Perfect opportunity. But David goes back and returns to his father's house and returns to the sheep. He never got too big or too good to be a shepherd. Verse 16, and the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. That's 80 times. He's saying the same thing. I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together and so forth. Verse 17, Jesse says to David, his son, take now for thy brother. They don't know anything about Goliath. They just know that the army's encamped over at a certain place. David, uh, Jesse says to David, take now for thy brother uh, this food and, and these ten loaves and run to the camp of thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of the thousand and look how the brethren fare and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So you need to realize there was fighting going on. It wasn't just Goliath coming out and everybody in a stalemate waiting for somebody to accept Goliath's challenge. There were skirmishes back and forth, but every morning and every evening, Goliath would come out and say, why don't we quit this fighting? Why don't we just make it a contest? You're a champion against me. And David rose up early, verse 20, in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper. David never quit caring about the sheep. This is one reason why he's a type of Jesus. No matter what work he had, no matter how important the other things that God was directing him to do or the plan of God for his life, he never stopped caring for the sheep. That's a good type and a good picture of Jesus' attitude towards you. He never gets too busy at the right hand of the Father to care for the sheep. David left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded and he came to the trench or the valley. As the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. He's shouting them on. He's agging them on. Yeah, go get them, guys. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. You need to realize something else, folks. Goliath is fighting day by day, and nobody can defeat this guy. So when he comes out and makes his challenge, send one guy out, he's in the middle of the armies, and bunches of people haven't been able to kill him yet. That's adding to their fear. The longer they fight, the more Goliath's fame grows. He spake, Goliath spake according to the same words, and David heard them this time. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? They're talking to David now. Have you seen this Goliath, this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel has he come up. And it shall be that the king, the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David spoke to the men that stood by him, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? There's two ways this is interpreted. Uh, most often people will say and preach that, uh, that this is David saying, Well, what's the reward for the guy that kills the, the giant, the guy that kills Goliath? But there's another, uh, the language really suggests that David is saying, why should the king give anything special to the guy that, def- that kills the one that's defying the armies of Israel? What special treatment or special riches should that guy deserve for doing away with this jerk that's defying the armies of Israel? So David says, what or why, literally, I believe, why, why should something be done for the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, he's denigrating Goliath in front of the other the Israeli soldiers. And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. In other words, even though David says, Why should somebody get a special reward for this? Everybody says, Well, the king's going to really make him some big hot shot now. If we can just find somebody that will go out and defeat him. And Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? See, now he's trying to run David down. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Eliab is really saying this. He's saying, you're trying to get somebody stirred up to go stand against the giant because you want to see somebody fight him. Now, is there any reason for Eliab to get mad about this? Eliab can go. We've already found out from chapter 16 that Eliab is the oldest brother of Jesse, or the oldest son of Jesse, David's oldest brother. And man, he looks like the part. He looks like the leader. He looks like the guy in charge. He's the tall guy. He's the handsome guy. He's the movie star looks. He's got it together. Why didn't Eliab go down there? Especially after Eliab hears all the good things that's going to be done for the guy that goes. What's he mad at David for? Folks, you you need to understand something. And that is people that won't step out in faith, boldness upon God's word, will always get mad and angry at the people who will. Eliab's looking at David saying, well, you're nothing. You're just a little shepherd boy. Daddy's put you in charge of the sheep because that's the easiest job that there is, the only thing that you can take care of. And you're just out here being proud. You ever heard people talk about those that make confessions according to God's word as being arrogant? What's the difference? None whatsoever. Notice what David says. David says, and here's how you need to handle things. Here's a good example of how to handle people that, uh, that try to uh, denigrate you. We're taking a bold stand on God's word, a stand of faith. David said three things, does three things. First thing he says, what have I now done? What have I done? Well, what has David done? He's asked, why should the guy that kills the Goliath get a special reward? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's a dog. Why didn't somebody take care of him? What's he done? Second thing he says, is there not a cause? The third thing, maybe the most important thing that he does, and he turns from him toward another. He didn't waste any more time on his older brother. He just turned and went to another and spake after the same manner. 
Same thing. He says the same thing. Why should the guy that kills this Philistine be given something special? Why should he get a special reward? Because who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Notice David does not say, he doesn't look so tough. I can take him. This is not about Goliath. This is not about David. In David's mind, this is about one thing, and this is why David says, is there not a cause? Because David's cause is not that we've got a Philistine challenging Israel. His cause is he's defying the armies of the, the, the he's defying the armies of Israel, the one who God is theirs, their God. The one that has a covenant with God, the, the nation, the country that has a covenant with God. Why in the world should anybody stand up against the nation whose God is the Lord? That's David's cause. Has nothing to do with him. Doesn't even have anything to do with Philistines. It has to do with God. So he asked another guy, why should he get a special reward? And they answered him the same way. Oh, no, the king's going to make him rich. Give him his daughter. I don't know if that's good or not. But the king's got big plans for this guy. How do the people know that? How do the soldiers know that there's a special reward for the one that defeats Goliath? David's question is, why is there a special reward? Why did the soldiers answer him? Oh, no, the king's going to do something big because the king is looking for somebody to take this guy. And everybody knows it and nobody volunteers. Verse 31, when the words that were heard, which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul and he sent for him. Finally, Saul's thinking, somebody's willing to go out against this guy. Great. Why didn't Saul go? Saul's a man of war. He's a mighty warrior, or so people thought. Why didn't he go? He doesn't want any part of this. He's afraid. Now, what does Saul know? Saul already knows that the Lord has departed from him. He knows whatever presence of God there was with him is not anymore. So if Saul ever won a battle with the Lord's help, we don't have any record that he did. But if Saul ever won the battle with the Lord's help, he probably did. It's probably just not recorded for the sake of brevity. But whatever battles he might have won before with the Lord's help. He has no reason to expect that now. So Saul hears that somebody's willing or somebody's talking about it at least. Saul's interested. Send for this guy. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, when David comes before him, remember now David's about 17 years old. David said to Saul, let no man's heart, let no man's heart Fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Don't worry, king. I'll go. Now, David knows Saul. He's played for him. He's refreshed him by his music. Saul, whether he remembers or not, Saul knows who David is, and he knows the characters, uh, the, the character description that he's heard about David that qualified him to, to be the one to refresh him by playing the musical instruments. Now, you know, kings are busy. It's not like they became best buddies or anything like that. So we don't know for sure if Saul ever remembered who this guy was. But David says, I'll do it. One of the things that's, uh, that, that fascinates me about David in the life of David is that, remember when, uh, when Saul disobeyed God and God said to Samuel, the prophet, he said, I'm going to find a man after my own heart. He did not say, I've got somebody set apart that I've given something special to. 
In other words, the character traits and the characteristics that we see of David in his life are the things that David as a youth, as a teenager, chose to develop in himself. Not because God had given him something. He was a man after God's own heart. He was somebody that cared about what God cared about. Not the other way around. That God gave somebody something special or picked somebody, handpicked somebody for, because of special gifts or had given him special gifts. These were things that David had developed on his own. So the character traits of David are very, very interesting to, to, to notice, at least as far as I'm concerned. So David says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, here's the second one that's told him he can't do it. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him because you're just a young boy. And Goliath has been a man of war since he was a young boy. You don't have the experience. Now, Eliab told him that he had the wrong attitude and the wrong motive. He didn't. Now, Saul says, you don't have the experience, but he does. And David says unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Well, apparently he was convincing because Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Now, there's something else you need to understand about this story, and that is the fate of Israel does not hang in the balance like we assume because of Goliath's challenge. Nobody accepts Goliath's challenge up to this point. And had Goliath won, that doesn't mean that Israel still couldn't have fought against them. It doesn't mean everybody would have laid down their arms. And and same thing's true for the Philistines. The Philistines sure didn't surrender after David defeats Goliath. They run to try to get away. So this is just bluster on, on Goliath's part. So Saul, whether he knows it or not, even though everything is hanging in the balance, the, the, the fate of Israel is at risk here. Saul is not looking at it like, well, this is our only hope. He's thinking, well, give him a chance. If he fails, and he probably will, we'll be just like we were before. We'll have to listen to this guy continue to talk and so forth. But Israel would have in no wise surrendered to, to the Philistines. This is just Goliath's talk. What I'm trying to get across to you is Goliath represents the devil. And just because he says things will be a certain way doesn't mean that's the way they are. So Saul says, go ahead. Now, what does David know? David knows that if God is able, because of the covenant that he made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if God is able to equip somebody to feed a lion and a bear, what's a giant? See, this is not a matter of David saying, well, I fought a lion once and I fought a bear, but, you know, I shot him, got a lucky shot from a long way off. Now, this is hand to hand. He's outmatched. Both the lion and the bear have superior strength, superior weapons, sharp teeth and claws. Well able to defeat a young boy, a teenage boy. And we don't know how long ago this was. We don't know if it was last month or last year or two years ago or five years ago. We don't know when this took place. 
But whenever it took place, it made enough of an impact on David to recognize the God that can control wild beasts and enable you and equip you to, to defeat wild beasts can certainly enable me and equip me to defeat a giant. In other words, he learned from his previous victories. Now stop and think about that for a minute. What in the world would cause a young teenage boy to go after a lion and a bear for one sheep? Seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? If that was your son out there keeping sheep, would you want him to go after the one? Or would you want him to say, Dad, a lion got a sheep and then a bear came a little later and got a sheep, but I knew you wouldn't want me to get hurt, so I stayed back and took care of the rest of them. Good job, son. Don't put yourself at risk for one sheep. But David did. There was something about David's character as a young man, young boy, teenage boy. There was something about his character that caused him to realize. And I, I, I can attribute it only to one thing. David's the one that wrote in the Psalms, in thy presence of Lord is fullness of joy. What does David know about the presence of the Lord? Because he's in it. He's experienced it. He's out there singing day after day after day to the Lord. He's learned the presence of the Lord. He's learned what it is for the God to be with you, for the presence of the Lord to be with you. He's learned something through his time of meditation. And David talked a lot in the Psalms about meditation. Let the meditations of my, of the words of, how's it go? The meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable unto thee, O Lord. David talks a lot about meditating in the word. He talks about a lot about the importance of the word. Psalm 119 is 160 something, 65 or some odd verses. Every one of them showing David's appreciation for the word of God. He knows a lot about meditating in the word. And that time of meditating in the word is just the same, produces just the same results as in Joshua's day, Joshua 1.8, when God told Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and now, day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after you meditate and become a doer of the word, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. David's put that in practice. He knows what Saul never finds out, and that is he's got a covenant with the God of the universe. And that covenant with the God of the universe is a covenant with a stronger God than a lion and a stronger God than a bear and a stronger God than a Philistine. So David takes no special pains. He's not careful about saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? He's saying, who is he to defy my covenant partner? The one that promised Abraham that he'd be with us forever. He must be convincing about it because Saul says, well, go ahead and go. Go ahead and do it. Then Saul gave David his armor, tried to put it on him. And David said in verse 39, Saul unto Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not proved them. And David put them off. What has David proved? He hadn't proved his armor, Saul's armor, but what has David proved? He's proven the name of the Lord. He's proven the value of it. He's proven the strength of it. He's proven the the consistency of it. He's proven the absolute victory that's in the name of the Lord. As a teenager. I wonder if this had anything to do with God saying, this is a boy after my own heart. And he took his staff in his hand. That's a little stick. And he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. 
and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in the script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went with him or before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. Here's the third one that's going to speak against David. He disdained him, for he was but a youth and a ruddy and a fair countenance. Literally, that means he was so young that the Philistine couldn't believe his eyes. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog? I'm sure David thought so. That thou comest to me with staves or sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said unto David, Come to me, and I'll give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David. Then said David. Do you remember uh, when Jesus was tempted of the devil after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and the devil came and tempted him? Three times Jesus responded, it is written. What you say when you're facing trouble is everything. Jesus shook the devil's kingdom in such a way that it never recovered with three words. It is written. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield. Well, that's what everybody thought made Goliath such a big dog. That's what everybody thought made Goliath invincible. Look at his armor. Look at his shield. Look at how big that that spear is. It's like a weaver's beam, the scripture said a few verses before. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord. I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now, folks, he's just saying he's going to cut Goliath's head off, and he's holding a stick and a sling. David knows that we're greater than what we look like we are when we go with God. Now, what does the name of the Lord mean? What did it mean to David when he said, I come to thee in the name of the Lord? What does that mean? He didn't have the name of Jesus to use. What does the name of the Lord mean? What did it mean to David? How is David using it? I mean, the only way we're going to be able to identify what the name of the Lord means is the way David operated relative to what he said about the name of the Lord. What did he have when he said, I come to thee in the name of the Lord? There's only one thing that he had. He didn't come out, come to him with verses of scripture. He didn't come saying, well, Joshua 1, 8 says, or just like God said to Moses, he didn't come with any of that. What does come to him in the name of the Lord mean? It means relationship. David is saying, I come to you in the relationship that I, as a child of Abraham, have with the creator of the universe. He doesn't look for any special weapons. He doesn't look for any special uh, equipment. He says, my relationship is sufficient to kill you and cut your head off. Because you've defined the God of Israel. Does David have a good, as good or as close a relationship as you do with the Lord? He may have better fellowship than you do. I hope not. But I have no doubt he had better, greater fellowship than most Christians, the majority of Christians. Yet, remember what Jesus said, talking about John the Baptist. He said uh, uh, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. 
He said, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater. The least in the kingdom of God is greater. That means no matter what you think about yourself, since you're a part of the kingdom of God, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you're greater than anybody and everybody in the Heroes Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? David says it's about relationship. You come to me with swords and shields and spears and weapons of war, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Oh, if we only knew what our relationship meant. So many Christians are praying, Lord, are we going to make it? Well, of course you're going to make it. He's in you. Now, like I said, I have no doubt that David's fellowship with the Lord, even though he didn't have God living on the inside of him, is greater than many Christians' fellowship is with him today. Because he spent time with the Lord. He spent time in, in prayer. He spent time in the word, meditating in the word. He spent time worshiping God. Those are the things that make up good, strong, solid fellowship with the Lord. There's only one way to fellowship with God, and that's through his word. So David recognizes something about that relationship that he has with God through his word. I come to you in the name of the Lord, and I'm going to take your head off this day. And all the assembly shall know. Verse 47, all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. In other words, David's saying it's important that I don't have a sword. It's important that I don't have a spear, because that's not what God uses to deliver his enemies into the hands of his people. Most people aren't wanting to go out because they don't have swords and spears. David understood something about that. You know what David is saying? David is saying, if it necessary, I could have defeated the lion and the bear because God was on my side if I didn't have anything. Well, if that was true for him, don't you suppose that would be true for us too? Sure it is. Verse 48, and it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. David is not running from the fight. He's running to the fight. Can you imagine? Just, just stop and imagine this for a minute. What would this world be if there were 50 people like David who were willing to take on every fight every time that the enemy raised his head and run to the fight instead of running away from it? I would submit to you that it would turn the world upside down. We had 12 of them in the book of Acts. Verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. If you go back to the early part of chapter 17, you'll talk about the, the, it speaks of, the scripture speaks of the first piece of the armor that it mentions was a helmet of brass. Now, I've heard the traditional things that when the Philistines laugh and he throws his head back and so the stone went underneath the, the headpiece and I don't believe that for a minute. Goliath is not laughing at this point. He's mad. He's been insulted. He sees a young boy running at him. So tell me, how did the stone get through the helmet of brass? I don't have an answer. 
but it did. If it had to, if it was traveling at such a speed that it had to break through the helmet and get into his forehead, that's what had happened. If there was another way for it to happen, so be it. But David wasn't worried about the logistics. He wasn't worried about how is this going to work. He doesn't pick an uncovered part of Goliath. He throws it right at his head. Right in the middle of that big old helmet. It sinks into his forehead. So that he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a a sling and a stone. And smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to some place, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. Let me show you something here, folks. The Bible is real specific When you win a victory, it inspires other people to fight. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put the armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this guy? Now notice what the guy who the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Notice his attitude. He says, whose daddy taught him this stuff? Abner says, I don't know. And the king says, inquire thou whose son the stripling is. The word stripling means something that was hidden. In other words, he's saying, find out whose uh, whose son this mystery man is. Now, we just saw in the previous chapter that Saul is the one that has been refreshed by David playing. It may be that Saul doesn't remember who this guy is at all. It may be that he's so important that he's not paying attention to who's playing and bringing him, you know, I mean, he's the king. He deserves the best. And so we just found somebody just found a good player, a good musician. There's an indication here, at least the implication, that Saul doesn't even know who he is. Saul doesn't connect the dots and put these things together. So he says, whose son is this guy? And Abner took him and brought him, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. David's not letting go of that thing. Tearing it around, dripping blood from the neck. And Saul said unto him, whose son are you? I love that. Whose son are you? See, David thought, I'm sorry, Saul thought that this was about his upbringing. Well, then what is Eliab doing standing over there, getting mad at David for saying that Israel should be able to defeat the Philistine? It's not about his father. It's not about his upbringing. Here's where David's a type of Jesus. Whose son is he? Jesus was the son of God. In a lot of ways, David was the son of God. Because what was in him was not in him because it was what his father's put in all of the children. What was in him was because of what he had given of himself to the Lord when he was by himself. Saul says to David, whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answers, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, real quickly, I know we're out of time, but I want to run through some things in chapter 18. It talks about Jonathan at the end uh, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Let me ask you a question. 
why does David or does uh, Saul not at this point or soon thereafter when it says Saul knew that the Lord was with David? Why doesn't Saul say, you know, you really need to be king here? The presence of the Lord has departed from me. I messed up. I've tried to repent, but it's too late. It's already gone. And you're obviously the one that God has chosen to lead these people. Why doesn't he do that? Because he doesn't care about the people. Because he cares about himself. Because he's a man of the flesh. Jonathan, who is Saul's son, is drawn to David when Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne. At least as far as the heredity is concerned. But Jonathan sees that David is something special. So what does Jonathan do? He takes off his garment, the garment of the next king, the prince. He takes off his garment and puts it on David. He gives David his clothes. He outfits David as in the manner which the next king of Israel should be outfitted, even down to his sword. Jonathan dresses David as a symbol that Jonathan recognizes the son of the flesh. But Jonathan recognizes he's the next one, not me. And it says their souls were knit together. Verse 5, and David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, behaved himself wisely. This, the, the scripture is going to say in the 18th chapter, it's going to say three times that David behaved himself wisely. I think he's trying to get a point across. He's still a teenager. He still has every opportunity to be lifted up. He's going to be really popular. Even more popular in the next few verses than he is after defeating Goliath. But none of those things phase him. None of those things change his character. They don't bring out the wrong things in him. They bring out the right things in him. So David behaved himself wisely and Saul set him over the men of war. He didn't take Abner's place as the captain of the host. It probably means his personal bodyguards. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with his tabrets and joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very mad. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto me David, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And David and Saul eyed David from that day and forward. What does Saul know? Saul knows the only thing left for this kid is the kingdom. Well, what's God got planned for him? To be the king. Saul knows that. Again, Saul misses a perfect opportunity to pass the throne along because it's all about Saul. Now, what does the popularity do? Popularity and position are the two things that turn Saul from being a humble man to being a prideful person and disobedient to the commandments of the Lord. Now, the popularity and position of David causes Saul to be jealous. Verse 10, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Here's that depression. As soon as Saul gives in to the jealousy, the depression comes back with a vengeance. It came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. The word prophesy is kind of an archaic word. It's kind of difficult. 
because it can mean a number of things. It literally, in its, in its basic form, means he acted as inspired by this evil spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's speaking uh, words or, or something like that. Many translations say that Saul was in a frenzy. Whatever it is, and we don't know for sure, at least I don't, whatever it was, what action or activity he was involved in, it was inspired of the evil spirit. This thing took hold of him in a much greater way than anything that they'd seen before. And David played with his hand and as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And notice David is still the musician. He's not too good to play for the king. He's not the captain of the men of war. The one that's, that everybody's singing about, David is slain his ten thousands. He's not too good for the same jobs that he had before. Anybody knew who he was. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. In other words, Saul threw at him twice. Don't know exactly how that worked. One might have been enough time for me to get out of there. But nevertheless, it literally says David dodged twice. Verse 12, and Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Here's another opportunity for Saul to do the right thing, but he's not going to do it. Therefore, Saul removed him from him, removed David from the court and made him a captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Now, you might think this is a big thing, but this is a, an insignificant job. If you go back to chapter 10, I think it is, verse 8, somewhere like that, it talks about how that when Saul was uh, leading the armies of Israel, he numbered the soldiers, and there were 330,000 of them. So to give David, who's the champion of Israel, charge of a 1,000 is an insult. Here's an opportunity for David to develop a bad attitude saying, God, this isn't right. There's not doing me right. Here I've delivered Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Single-handedly inspired the greatest victory that we've ever had over these people. And now he insults me by giving me a charge over a thousand. But that's not what it says David does. Verse 14, and David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. Folks, you need to understand something. The people that rise up the greatest against you, the more you live by the word, the more afraid they are of you. Just because they're blustering and saying things and what they're going to do and just because the devil's threatening and this, that, and the other, he's afraid of you when you're walking in the word. He knows the power that you're operating in, even if, the, even if you're not convinced. He knows. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said unto David, Behold, my elder daughter Meribah, or Merib, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Now here, notice David's attitude again in verse 18. David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? In other words, David's not standing up and saying, well, I am the champion, you know. And, you know, the soldiers did say that you were going to give me your daughter. So it's about time you made good on that. No, instead, he's saying, who am I to be the king's son-in-law? One of the things about David's attitude, even as a teenager, and this is so rare among young people, 
Usually young people start off thinking that they're everything. And then they get old enough and get knocked around enough to where they realize I'm not exactly who I thought I was 20 years ago or however many. But David starts off by saying, wait a minute, who am I to be the son-in-law of the king? Folks, he's been anointed to be the next king. But he's not going to put himself out there. He's not going to put himself in front. He's not going to try to make this happen. If this is God that did it, then it's God that's going to have to pull it off. Verse 19, but it came to pass at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was given to another guy to be his wife. So in other words, Saul says, here's what I'm going to do, but then reneges on it. He's trying to provoke David, and David won't have any part of it. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Now, why did it please Saul? If he's not wanting his first daughter to be David's wife, then why does he want this daughter to be David's wife? And Saul said, I will give him her that she may be a snare to him. So he must have known something about his daughter. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore, Saul said to David, thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. In other words, now I'll have two son-in-laws. First, the other guy got the first daughter. Now you can be my second son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, commune or speak with David secretly and say, behold, the king has delight in thee and all his servants love thee. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. In other words, he's saying, try to talk him into being my son-in-law. Why? Because David says, who am I to be your son-in-law? Who am I to marry your daughter? I'm nobody. I'm not worthy of this position. I'm not worthy of the place that that would give me. So Saul says to his servants, try to talk him into this. Be discreet and be sly, but try to talk him into this. And the servants of the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. I skipped something. Verse 23. And Saul's servants spake these words in the years of David. And David said, seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. Now, now my guess is his esteem has come up a lot since he defeated Goliath. I mean, they're singing songs about the kid. But notice nothing that Saul does, not the popularity, not the fame, not the, not the wrong that's been done to him. None of these things changes David's character. He's still the young kid that's going out in the name of the Lord. And as long as he maintains that place and that attitude, nothing can stop him. Verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, saying, on this manner spake David. In other words, they went back to Saul and said, here's what David's saying. And Saul said, thus say you, shall you say to David, the king desires not any dowry. In other words, nothing from your family or, you know, being of prominent families or anything like that. The king desires not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He's giving David a job that he thinks is going to get David killed. And when David, when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Wherefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and slew of the Philistines 200 men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his son, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. This is not working out for Saul any way he goes. 
And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass that after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by, or his name was much renowned. Now let me read these back to you again. Verse 5, it says, David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. Verse 14 says, After David was made a captain over a thousand, he went out and came in before the people, and David behaved himself wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. Finally, now in verse 30, David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. Each one shows an increase in David's behavior and the wisdom that he's operating in, no matter what Saul is trying to do to him. Now, the end result of this is that Saul is going to spend the rest of his life chasing David and trying to destroy him. And every time, no matter how bad it gets, every time something goes against David, every time somebody makes a promise to him and breaks the promise, every time somebody turns things around against David, David behaves more wisely than before. And this is a man after God's own heart. What should that be an example to us of? How many times do people do us wrong, little things in comparison to what David had to deal with? And we get our panties in a bunch and we think, well, I'm just tired of this. I'm just not going to put up with this anymore. Lord, don't you even see what they're doing to me? Instead, what should we do? Behave more wisely. Yeah, but... But the devil is bringing trouble in on every hand. Then behave more wisely. Many times behaving wisely is to confess the word. Many times behaving wisely is to walk in love. Many times behaving, many times behaving wisely is to do good to those that do evil to you. You're going to have to figure out in your situation, what's the wisest thing to do in my situation, in my circumstance? Every time David behaved himself more wisely, everybody involved saw that the Lord was with him. How do you want things to go for you in life? I don't know about you, but I want the Lord to be with me and everything so that everybody sees it. Don't you? There's only one way that comes, and that's by being a doer of the word. In other words, behaving wisely. David's character motivated everything that he did. They could not get this kid down. And remember, this is a teenager. He doesn't have the wealth of experience, the life experience that we might think that it would take to mature somebody. He's been matured by his time spent with God in meditating in the word. So that no matter what they do, no matter how they squeeze him, the only thing that comes out is wisdom in his behavior, wisdom in his lifestyle. That's a good example for us to follow. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus has made unto us wisdom. Thank you that the word of God is wisdom. And that when we put it in practice in our lives, it leads us into a safe place, Lord. Your word says, they that hearken unto you, hearken unto your wisdom, shall dwell safely and be quiet from the fear of evil. Thank you, Father, that the presence of the Lord is seen upon us as we are doers of your word. Lord, let us be of the same character as David, so that nothing anybody does can pull us away from the instruction that you give us in how to operate and handle our situations in life with wisdom according to the word of God. Thank you, Father, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you that because we're in Christ, 
the name of the Lord is ours. And everything that we do, we do in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.